You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one out of the seat in front of you or under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible that's yours, make that yours. Uh, use it. Read it often. We, we believe that, that God speaks through His Word, the Holy Scriptures. And, and so set your heart on it uh, and live by it. Um, the month of January is known as Sanctity of Human Life Month. Uh, we, we don't always make a big deal about it here at Oak Hill, uh, just because, you know, we just don't follow calendars like that. Uh, but we do, we do care a lot about the sanctity of human life. Uh, it, it's written into our doctrinal guidelines for teaching. We, we acknowledge it as it comes up verse by verse through the Bible, um, Each year during the month of January, churches and other organizations across the country take time to promote the cause of protecting life uh, from womb to tomb, as some people say. Uh, The unborn, the underprotected, God cares about human life. All all human beings are created in His image. He knits us together in our mother's wombs. There, There are even some Little people here today who are being knit together in their mother's wombs. Isn't that exciting? We're going we're gonna to see them in a couple weeks. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, Nick's very excited about that because <laughs> he's, he's got one of them coming. Uh, but only the Lord is the author of life, and only He can give it. Only He can take it away. And, and we believe that protecting human life is not primarily a political cause. Amen? This is a divine mandate. And yet, some of our greatest allies in that cause have been those with political influence or political positions. Uh, Other times, evangelical churches partner in this cause with other churches where where, where they would share some theological differences on a lot of fundamental things, like like maybe the Catholic Church, for example. They've been some of the greatest allies in the pro-life cause. And, and on this issue, the partnership has proven helpful, right? And it's okay, and that's good. The problem can come when, in, in order to partner in this area, we would be asked to make concessions and compromises in another area. So maybe there's a politician who, who will support the pro-life cause, but in order to re- really receive their support for that cause, they're, they're going to put some stipulations on that. There's going to be some quid pro quo. You, you're going to have to change your stance on another issue that's really close to God's heart. There's maybe an organization who, who would be a good ally on this front, but to partner with them, they would make you maybe sign a, a statement saying that you, something that you can't affirm in good faith. And, and that would become a problem, wouldn't it? I'm not saying it happens very often, but it can become a problem. And we live in a world where we are confronted with these types of choices on a regular basis. Not not just in the area of social issues, but also in personal relationships, workplace opportunities, maybe, maybe people asking you to support a certain financial cause. Uh, maybe business opportunities and investments that, that promise success. 
And you're like, man, if I made all that money, then I could use it over here for good things. And, and yet, they would cause you to compromise in some way. Maybe friendships that will help you gain popularity or affirmation in some way. Politicians who promise security of some sort in exchange for your vote or your publicity. A personal love interest that seem like they're going to satisfy this hole in your heart. We live in a world that is constantly making partnerships and alliances to advance causes. And yet these alliances often fail to make good on their promise. Through our study in this portion of the book of Genesis, we've been seeking to develop an abiding faith in Christ's calling and promise. And we've seen faith or or trust in the Lord set in contrast against things that would draw our hearts away from the Lord. So from Abram's first call from the land of the Chaldeans, we saw faith in contrast to making a name for ourselves. From his time in Egypt, we we saw faith in contrast to our desire to control our circumstances. From his return to the land of promise and his, his interactions with his nephew Lot, we saw faith in contrast to satisfying the selfish desires of our hearts. And all three of these things, making making a name for ourselves and control and lust, all of these stand opposed to developing an abiding life of faith. And we're going to see another contrast today. Uh, Trusting other people or certain earthly alliances that we would make. Here's our big idea for the day. Trust the immovable promises of God Most High over the unstable promises of earthly alliances. Trust the immovable promises of God Most High over the unstable promises of earthly alliances. So your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, This is the second narrative that we get involving Abram's nephew Lot's. Uh, Last week we read about Lot's choice to to go to the land that was east of the Jordan. We saw all kinds of warning signs that Moses was giving us that this is not headed in a good direction. He, He saw that the land was rich. He chased after the lust of his eyes going east, which is in Genesis, a direction away from the presence of the Lord. We we, we saw that he moved right next to the wicked city of Sodom. And and so it's no surprise that we find Lot in our text today in a heap of trouble. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 14, reading in your Bibles along with me. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kanaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakariatharim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. 
Then they turned back and they came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kederleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, some, of them, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people." After his return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will not take, I will, I'm sorry, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. And all of God's people were like, what? <laughs> what a weird passage, right? And why all these names? And I believe that this passage is here in God's Word to teach us to trust the immovable promises of God Most High over the unstable promises of earthly alliances. We, we see all kinds of earthly alliances in this chapter. So we have an original alliance between nine kings. We, we have a rebellious alliance between five of those kings against another alliance of four of those kings. We have a loose alliance between Lot and Sodom. We have an alliance between Abram and Mamre and his brothers. And we have an attempted alliance between the king of Sodom and Abram. Do you see how maybe the idea of alliances is central to this text? 
And so that's a starting point. That, that gives us a little bit of bearings. And, and here's the first thing I believe that we can witness about these alliances. is that It's this. Earthly alliances promise stability, but often sweep you up in their turmoil. Earthly alliances promise stability, but often sweep you up in their turmoil. So remember from last week that Lot had pitched his tent in the east as far as Sodom. And we had seen, he had seen the wealth of this land, the allure of this land. He, he wanted a piece of it. But chapter 13, verse 13, was clear that the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. This is who Lot attached himself to. And now we're going to see how that's working out for him. Apparently, Sodom was part of an alliance of, of nine kings. In those days, uh, cities had kings uh, as well as regions. So these are kind of like city-states, that kind of idea. Uh, but all of these kings were under the central rule of Kederleomer, king of Elam. Uh, on the screen is a map for you of all the kingdoms that are mentioned and kind of where they're all coming from. The only one that's not here is Bela, because we don't really know much about that. Uh, but you have five kingdoms in the east, and then you have four more localized kingdoms. I'm sorry, four kingdoms in the east, and five more localized kingdoms in the west. And the, four, and the five western kingdoms served Kederleomer for 12 years. We don't know exactly uh, how, what, that, what that arrangement looked like, and we don't know exactly how it fell apart. Uh, but in the 13th year, they decide to break their alliance and create a new one. They decide to rebel. They're like, why should this guy have all the power over us? We're done with this. We're out of here. And so Kederleomer takes him a year to get his feet under him, and he's like, all right, let's go, let's go get these guys back. Let's go teach them a lesson. And so he and the four eastern kingdoms attacked the five western kingdoms, and long story short, they won. They plundered the western kingdoms, and they sent them running, and all their riches that, that looked so enticing to lots were gone. Everything that drew him to this place is gone. But not only that, Lot himself is caught up in the crossfire of this. And because Lot cozied up with the king of Sodom, he was swept up in the turmoil of their alliances gone bad. The promise of stability quickly became the reality of chaos. We see this again and again in history, don't we? National alliances, political alliances, corporate alliances, relational alliances, they, they look like they're this surefire pathway to success. They look like they're going to give us what we want. But the slightest change in status quo shows us just how fickle and fragile they can be. And we put way too much hope in them only to be let down, down the road. So sort of think of it like this, like this game, uh, Don't Break the Ice. You remember this game? Anybody play that game when you were younger, right? My kids still have a version of it, right? And, and so uh, the alliances are, are like the blocks of ice, right? They, uh, at first, all of the blocks are in good relationship to one another. They're, they're packed in there nice and neatly. They hold each other up. Things are working out great. And that, that little man, he's, he's out there in the, uh, in the middle of the ice, right there, just putting his trust in the fact that none of this is going to fall through, right? But then as, as unexpected forces, i.e. the players, 
begin to chip away at those little ice blocks, the whole thing becomes more and more fragile until it all caves in, taking the little man along with it. That little man is Lot. The alliances of this world are like the relationships between those blocks. They, they start out looking pretty sturdy, but as soon as inevitable challenges weaken their durability, they leave you out in the cold. And this should serve to set our expectations about what an earthly alliance can accomplish. The people who look so strong, so worthy of our allegiance and our trust, so strategic to partner with, those are often the very ones who will drop us like a dirty rag as soon as they no longer see us as strategic. And these earthly alliances are far more fragile than they appear at first glance. Whether it's a a business partner or an employer or a financial advisor or a politician or a friend, if they promise stability, expect turmoil. Because stability is not a promise that a finite human being can really make and keep. They're over-promising. And they're going to under-deliver. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never make alliances. You're probably sitting here thinking, well, Pastor Ben, look, alliances are part of life. Yes, they are. It means that our alliances need to be in their proper place. Notice in verse 13 that Abram has an alliance that does work out. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And so here's the second thing that we see in this text about earthly alliances and and their relationship to faith. Uh, It's this, earthly alliances can be providential, but must be subject to God's redemptive purposes. Earthly alliances can be providential, but must be subject to God's redemptive purposes. So here's Abram. He's living out in the promised land. He's separated from this whole hullabaloo of the nine kingdoms. And a messenger, presumably one of Lot's servants, comes and he gets him and he's like, your nephew is in trouble. It reminds me of when I'm kind of enjoying a, a conversation with Katie in the kitchen and, and two of my kids are roughhousing in the living room and then they, one comes in and he's like, Dad, Dad, come! You gotta, this one's hurt! Right? Like, is it exactly what I want to be doing in that moment to go into the other room and stop my conversation with Katie? No. Is it my fault when they hit each other with swords, knowing the risks? No. But... Is it exactly what I should be doing in that moment to go check on them and help them? Absolutely. Because I am responsible for my family. 
Now notice, Abram is not just living by the oaks that belong to Mamre and Canaan. Mamre the Amorite, along with his brothers, are listed as his allies. His allies. Now, if you know your Bibles, you you know that the Amorites are, are part of the people that the Israelites are going to destroy when they enter into the promised land under Joshua. And so a good Israelite reading this should be like, Amorites? Mamre the Amorite? I thought they were our enemies. Abram was their ally? However, in the very next chapter, Genesis 15, the Lord will say that the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete, and that's why he is delaying on bringing his people into the promised land. And when it is, his people will enter. They will overtake this people and have their promise. But for now, uh, Abram, the Hebrew, is allied with Mamre, the Amorite, and his brothers. Uh, By the way, this is the the first time that the term Hebrew is used in the Scriptures. It's actually a fairly rare term in the Scriptures. uh, And it is the ethnic identity of the people of Israel. And it could be here in Genesis 14 because it's, it's perhaps that this part of the writing was a, a piece of history that, that existed in another document and was copied into the biblical text by Moses. That, that's a possibility. But I also think that Moses is setting Abram the Hebrew apart from his Amorite allies. He wants the Israelite readers to remember where they came from. Abram is a Hebrew like them. And yes, he was allied for a moment, but he is a Hebrew. At any rate, this alliance seems to serve a good purpose in God's plan. Uh, That's what we call providence. God's sovereign will and work in human history to accomplish his redemptive purposes. That's providence. God's sovereign will and work in human history to accomplish His redemptive purposes. And this alliance seems to be an act of providence. Like, think about it. For Abram to live in the land of Canaan, when he's not a landowner to begin with, he's going to need some land to live on. Especially with all of his livestock and all of his possessions and, and all of his servants and all that stuff. For Abram to rescue his kinsmen from four kings, he's he's going to need some help. And apparently the Lord has shown him favor with Mamre. Not only that, but he and Mamre share a common interest in this rescue mission that that they're about to execute. Up in verse 7, did you notice that it says that Keterleomer defeated the Amorites in Hazazon Tamar? These were his people. He has a stake in this game. Despite the fact that this is not their war, both Abram and Mamre have skin in the game. And they sit down and they draw up their plan. Uh, apparently, apparently, Abram has some equivalent of an army ranger unit above, among his servants, right? And so, so they go in, they go in covert op style, they extract the package, they take out the enemy, they t- return home victorious with all of the plunder. In this case, the Lord uses some sort of temporary alliance with these Amorites to rescue Lot out of slavery to Elam. The Lord provides what Abram needs to do the honorable thing to help his kinsmen. And that's the important thing to recognize here. 
Abram is not in some military alliance for personal gain. He's not trying to expand his territory beyond what God has given him or or to conquer some newly forming empire here. He's simply trying to rescue his kinsmen. Get in, get out, return to enjoying God's promise. For him, the alliance was subject to the purposes of God. It was a a providential means to a God-honoring end. The alliance itself had no hold on him. It was was not the source of his trust. Notice even that the text does not even describe what the other guys did in this fight. It describes the alliance, and at the end of the text, it describes that they have some portion in the spoils. And so we can assume that they're along in this journey, and yet the focus is entirely on Abram and his work. I believe that, that the mention of the alliance implies that it's there and that we should think carefully about it. But the whole focus is on how God worked through Abram. It was the will of God that shared interests and close proximity led him and those, these Amorites to partner together to save their people. And so as you consider the opportunities for alliances that present themselves in this world, make sure Make sure, make sure that they are subject to the redemptive purposes of God. Keep them in their proper place. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be in the world, but not of the world. And sometimes the common interests compel us to make partnerships. Sometimes we're going to need to take action. I mentioned the partnerships that that come from promoting the pro-life cause because because that's close to God's heart. Sometimes our partnership with organizations like like Slanko Neighborhood Ministries or the Slanko Pastors Fellowship might put us together with some people that we might not agree with on some things, even some big things at times. Sometimes relationships in the community, say on a sports team or in a school district, they're necessary and even helpful to promote the causes of the Lord, but they have to remain subject to the Lord's purposes. See, partnerships with unbelievers are just a natural fact of life if we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. Some of you got married before you became a Christian. And then you became a Christian and your spouse did not. That, that is a close alliance that can still be very redemptive and very good. But you're going to need to navigate some things wisely and you're going to need to trust the Lord as your primary relationship. Some of you grown adults may have parents who have high expectations on your time and, and your commitment to the family. And listen, that, that is a providential relationship. You had no control over that. And, and God put, you, put them in your life to honor them. But that relationship must be submitted to the Lord. He is the source of your identity. His purposes in each sphere of your life are what you are seeking. Not your parents' approval. Not their manipulative tactics and and, and appeasing those. The Lord is your primary allegiance. On the other end of the spectrum, many of you have grown kids who've walked away from the Lord or, or never knew Him in the first place. 
It's so painful. And the Lord is, is not saying, don't have a relationship with them. He wants you to be a redemptive presence in their life. But there may be some situations where, where they're seeking something from you that you can't give. Approval of certain life choices or compromise on your faith in some way. You might have friends who are unbelievers or who claim to know Jesus, but it doesn't seem to make much difference in their lives. Listen, it's not wrong to be friends with them. In fact, it could very well have redemptive purposes. But the question we must always ask in any of these situations is this. Are the Lord's purposes still leading the way for me? Or have I compromised out of fear of losing this alliance and what it will mean for any battle that I'm facing? Another way to pose that question is to ask, am I influencing the people I'm partnered with toward the Lord and His way? Or are they influencing me away from the Lord and His way? We have to be very honest with ourselves with that question. Because our hearts are so deceitful. And the allure of earthly alliances is so subtle and it's so easy to trust what is right in front of me, what is tangible instead of what is spiritual and in the heavenly places. And so apply these questions to to friendships and workplace relationships and every other alliance that you could make in your life. Am Am I actually influencing the people I'm partnered with toward the Lord in His way? Or are they influencing me away from the Lord and His way? In the next verses, we see that Abram refused to be led away from the Lord by any earthly alliance. Look at verse 17 again. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be, God, I'm sorry, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So far, we've seen that earthly alliances promise stability but often sweep you up in their turmoil. Earthly alliances can be providential but must be subject to the God's redemptive purposes. Uh, Finally, we see that earthly alliances are fickle but the promises of God most high are immovable. Earthly alliances are fickle but the promises of God most high are immovable. So Abram finishes his his mission. He gets in, he gets out, and he goes home. And the king of Sodom, remember his name is Bera, he's like, meet me in the valley of the kings. I have an offer that you can't refuse. 
He's like, this, this Abram guy has, has some serious fighting power. I want him on my side. And, and so he, he's going to offer Abram all the spoils of war for, for, for getting all this back. He wants to try to make an alliance with Abram, it seems. He wants Abram to owe him one, not the other way around. But there's another king, some, some mysterious figure who shows up first in the Valley of the Kings. Almost out of nowhere, as abruptly as he came, his name is Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem, which is a, a city that, that likely sat above the Valley of the Kings. You might know it by its later name, Jerusalem. And the Valley of the Kings by its later name, the Kidron Valley, which Jesus rode through on the back of a donkey to make his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And Melchizedek's name itself means king of righteousness. And the word Salem means peace. And so this is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Sound like anyone you know? But he's not just a king. Like that other guy we know, he's also a priest. He's a, a priest is someone who, who represents God to the people and the people to God. And he comes representing God to Abram using the Hebrew name or title for God, El Elyon, God Most High. It means the God who reigns above all things. The God who is over it all. In other words, Melchizedek re represents the one true God to Abram. He, he walks up to Abram with a meal of bread and wine in his hands. This is a symbol of fellowship, of covenant. And he meets Abram in the valley of the kings and he blesses him in the name of the Lord. And he also blesses the Lord for being the one who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. And so make no mistake, Abram, th this is not you or your allies who did this work. This was the Lord. Understand in this blessing, just like, like in chapter 12, Abram is blessed because of his association with God. He, he is not blessed because of his alliance with Mamre and the brothers. He's not blessed because the king of Sodom thinks he's hot stuff. He's not blessed because he personally has a lot of power and skill. Abram is blessed because God Most High has made him blessed. Abram is blessed because God Most High has showered his favor down upon him and delivered his enemies into his hands. In Genesis, Melchizedek is, is a very mysterious figure. He leaves as quickly as he shows up. But in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is all about the promised anointed Savior King who is to come, King David brings him up again, just like out of nowhere. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah... The Savior of the world will be a king who is also a priest, just like Melchizedek. He, he's not a priest of the Old Covenant temple system. 
He's not a priest from Aaron's line. The, the Messiah is a priest who's superior to, to Aaron's line. He's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest, one who proclaims God's eternal blessing to his people. And so the author of Hebrews in the New Testament picks this up in chapter 7, and he applies this directly to Jesus. Just in case you were wondering, are we talking about the right person? Yes, we're talking about Jesus. He points out that we need a priest, not one who mediates the Old Testament law, but one who mediates a better covenant, a better relationship with God. We, we need a priest who will remain a priest forever because he doesn't have to deal with his own sin. He, we need a priest who makes a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin and then forever stands before the throne of God. In the words of Hebrews 7.25, we need a priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is that priestly king who comes to us just like Melchizedek came to Abram. He shows up with the bread of his body and the wine of his blood in his hands. And he sacrificed himself on behalf of his people. And he rose again and he ascended to the Father's right hand. And he restores the gracious blessing of relationship with God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And by simply putting our faith in this priest king, this Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, we can be saved to the uttermost. Do you know him? Do you trust him? See, Jesus is the ultimate king of righteousness, the ultimate king of peace. And that is so much better than anything that the king of Sodom or any other earthly alliance could offer. Notice Melchizedek back in Genesis 14, the king of Salem and, and Bera, the king of Sodom, they both offer Abram a blessing of sorts. Uh, Bera is, is offering the payment of the spoils of war. It's, it's immediate but fleeting. Melchizedek's blessing is, is spiritual and eternal. And it comes from God. Bera is trying to make an alliance, but Abram knows better. He's like, I've already committed to the Lord that if you offer me some sort of payment, I'm not going to take an ounce of it. I don't want to owe you, O wicked king of Sodom. I don't want to owe you anything. That is bold. Like, that's some costly Conviction. Think about how much he's being offered here. Now, of course, he, he doesn't speak on behalf of his allies. He's, he's separate enough from them. That was a temporary partnership solely for the Lord's narrow purposes. He says that they can make their own choice in this regard. They're not bound to him. But as far as Abram is concerned, the king of Sodom is bad news. He won't take a, a cent from him. Instead, he will gladly give one-tenth of all that is his own. 
to the king of Salem. Notice, the alliance that he chooses actually costs him something. He gives instead of takes. Why? Because the king of Salem has delivered to him the blessing of the possessor of heaven and earth. That's an alliance worth making. The the God who is over all, the God who, who controls everything, has attached himself to Abram purely as an act of grace. And so what is giving up one-tenth of all you have when the possessor of all things in the whole world is on your side? What do you got to lose in that moment? What can the wicked king of Sodom offer you when the God Most High is already your ally? And Abram is like, like, sorry, Bera. I've already made my alliance. So right around this time of year, You'll see a lot of sports players making their choices about where they're going to go to college based on who's extended to them a scholarship offer, who has the best track record, the one that they want to go to, right? And sometimes there's a little ceremony and they'll, they'll put it on social media. I just saw this in the Solanco Chronicle this week, but, but uh, you know, if they're really good, it'll come out on, the, on like WGAL or something like that. They'll say, committed, committed to Penn State, committed to Liberty University. What are they doing in that moment? They are publicly stating that if some other alliance comes along trying to offer them something, they won't bite. I'm committed. Committed. We talk about faith being dependence, devotion, and delight in Christ, right? And that's Abram here. He's saying, I'm committed. I have already received the best offer I could possibly get from the most trustworthy ally I could possibly find. I've made God most high my refuge. He is my ally and he is enough. This week in our staff meeting, we were, we were praying through Psalm 118. We've, we've been praying through the Psalms as a staff for a, a couple of years now so that we're on 118. And uh, Psalm 118 is, does a good job of summarizing this contrast that we're making today. In verses 8 and 9, it says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That's exactly the point that Genesis 14 is making. Even as Israel is about to enter into the promised land and there's going to be a ton of temptations to to compromise on what God has called them to do, there there will be plenty of opportunities to trust in princes over the Lord. But the psalmist is saying, we can trust in the Lord, it is better. Or we can trust in princes. We can make an alliance with the Lord or we can make an alliance with princes and one is far better than the other. Now, maybe you're looking at those verses up on the screen and the verses that we have uh, in our Bibles in Genesis 14, and you're saying, but Pastor Ben, I don't know any kings. I don't know any princes. We live in a democracy, not a monarchy. I'm not tempted to trust kings and princes. I I I guess this whole sermon doesn't apply to me. Well, perhaps some of us might read it like this. It is better to take refuge in the Lord 
than to settle for a less than godly significant other. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to find sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. Or how about this? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to to make deals with a successful but unrighteous businessman. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to allow your boss to make ungodly demands on you. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than for a church to receive a gift from someone who will try to control them. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to use gimmicks to get more people in the seats. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to align yourself with a crooked politician. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to toe the party line. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to make friends with the popular people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to build a deep friendship with someone who leads you into compromise. What earthly alliances are vying for your dependence and your devotion? If you aren't confronted with any now, trust me, you will be. You will be. And remember, they may promise stability, but they will often sweep you up in their turmoil. They are sometimes providential, but you must make sure that they are submitted to the Lord's redemptive purposes. By the way, the covenant that is submitted to the Lord's redemptive purposes is His people. This is the partnership that helps us stay committed to the others, to the Lord in the others. The earthly alliances are often fickle, but the promises of God are immutable. Which one would you rather choose? Would you rather choose to take refuge in the Lord or to trust in man? I hope that when the day comes and that choice stares you in the face, you will be able to say with Abram, I've made God most high my refuge. He is my ally and he is enough. Would you make that commitment to the Lord right now in prayer? Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.